Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Hi, I'm Chris Cottonor, executive producer of Deep State Radio. Your support makes it possible to continue to bring you the expert analysis and opinion that you've come to depend on. We've recently introduced two additional benefits available exclusively to members. On Mondays and Thursdays, members can listen to additional bonus content in the podcast. And on Wednesdays and Fridays, members can read Notes from the Subbasement, our new members-only briefing featuring written opinion and analysis from host David Rothkoff. To become a member, visit bit.ly slash dsrmember and use code OCTOBERLAUNCH for a 10% discount at checkout. That's bit.ly slash dsrmember. Thank you and enjoy the episode. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello and welcome to the latest episode of the podcast. I'm your host, David Rothkoff, coming to you today from New York City. We are joined today, as ever, on a Monday by Corey Shockey of the American Enterprise Institute, who's conceivably in Washington, D.C. Is No, 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 no. I have skated home to California because we have little kids in the mix for Thanksgiving in the Shockey tribe. I am responsibly quarantining so as not to be a danger to them. You are a great citizen, Corey, as we have always known. Uh, We are also joined, and I'm guessing from Washington, D.C., by Constanza Stelzenmuller, who is an expert on German, European, and transatlantic foreign and security policy and strategy, and the inaugural holder of the Fritz Stern Chair on Germany and transatlantic relations at the Center for the United States and Europe at Brookings. Welcome. Thank you so much. I'm sorry that that was so involved. Well, hopefully you'll come back in the future and I'll come up with a shorter way of saying it. You can just say Constanza then. Yeah, well, just uh, we, will, we, will, we will do that. And we are joined by our friend uh, Evo Dalder, who is the CEO for the Chicago uh, Council of Global Affairs. And are you in Chicago, Evo? Yeah, I'm in my basement where <laughs> I've basically been for the last, uh, what, 20 months. Well, you must have a sun lamp in there. You look great. So I, I thought it was appropriate that we uh, all get together and talk a little bit about some things that are going on in Europe. There are many things that are going on in Europe that have the future of the alliance sort of in the spotlight, but let's just take them one at a time. And let's start with the one that is front of mind for a lot of people, and that is whatever it is that Russia is doing on the Ukraine border. It seems like their buildup of uh, troops and material there has captured everybody's attention. Today, the president of France said that France would defend Ukraine. The uh, secretary general of NATO has said that he's concerned about what might not be predictable, which I thought was great diplomatise for what actually is predictable. And I'd just like to start by going around to each of you 
and getting your sense of the significance of what's happening on the border. And I'd like to start with you, Constanza. I am not in possession of, you know, privileged information on this. So I, I read the news like all of you. And I have talked to a couple of folks in Berlin about this as well. I mean, yes, you've already noted the, the Germans are currently negotiating the transition to the next government. So as happens so often, this comes at an inopportune moment when the Germans aren't exactly fully laser focused on this. Although I will say this, that of course, there is a caretaker government run by, by Angela Merkel and with a defense minister and a foreign minister who do seem to be paying intense attention to this, but are sort of trying to maintain a low profile as is customary in this kind of transition situation. That said, it seems to me that the statements they've put out are A, clearly concerned. Um, today, the French and the German foreign ministers went so far as to threaten, quote unquote, severe consequences in the case of a Russian challenge to uh, Ukrainian territorial integrity. I mean, there was a bit of whataboutism in their statement as well, which I don't like, but severe consequences was, was an interesting thing to put out there. That said, this is, you know, what we're looking at is the sort of perfect storm. I'd rather use a word that we can't use on there, but it looks like a perfect storm of the weaponization of European inter interdependence by the Russians and by the Belarusians. Energy security, porous territorial borders, European disunity, disinformation, etc. It's all in the mix. The new German government is going to be pounded over the head with it, I fear. Well, I don't think you've listened to this podcast enough because you could have used whatever language you like. Um, okay. <laughs> and, and I noted. Yeah, I'll, I dare you to do that in the future. Evo, I've I've seen you tweeting about this a little bit. You seem concerned about it. Is this just Putin being Putin, or is this something different? Like Constanza, I I don't have access to classified information anymore. And if I did, I certainly couldn't be talking about it on this podcast, because it's language you actually are not allowed to use under those circumstances. But I, I am struck by two things. One, talking to folks in the administration, I have not heard them being as concerned as they are to a person, basically saying that what they are seeing is something they've not seen, seen before. And we know that that is the case because they sent the director of the Central Intelligence Agency, Bill Burns, to Moscow specifically to have a discussion about what is happening. And what apparently is happening, reading sort of between the lines, is a, a very large buildup of Russian forces, according to the Ukrainians, about 115,000 troops, air uh, and, and naval personnel arrayed around the southern and eastern border of Ukraine and part of the north as well. Troop movements that are taking place at night rather than during the day. And this is on top of stuff that was already happening uh, a few months ago when uh, the Russians put about 80,000 troops uh, on the Ukrainian borders and left most of the equipment there. There's also indications that they are uh, in some ways actively significantly enhancing their capacity uh, and their support for what's happening inside Ukraine, particularly in the Donetsk region where the war has never stopped. It started in 2014 and it has continued every single day. And every single day there are skirmishes and every single day people uh, get wound, are wounded and, and die. So I think what is happening is believed to be by the administration, which has gone out and briefed most of the Europeans 
now, uh, again, at very high levels, to be very, very serious indeed. That said, what I don't see is much beyond an expression of grave concern or severe concern or doubly grave, severe concern or whatever. Uh, and, and I don't know what is being said privately, but publicly, I think the posture hasn't quite matched the opportunity, the sense of alarm that I hear. We haven't had a NATO meeting, uh, as far as I can tell, other than in a briefing level uh, or any of that sort. And you do wonder whether we are sending a strong enough signal to Moscow about uh, the consequences of any action. And in fact, whether we have really thought through those consequences ourselves. What do you think, Corey? I think the administration has thought through the consequences. And like the previous two administrations, it wants to sound tough and like we will defend Ukraine without actually defending Ukraine. Because the Russians have a really strong hand here. They took Crimea, they're fighting in Donbass. I think Vladimir Putin wants a world where Russia and the United States are two hugely consequential powers that everyone has to get out of the way of. And the increasing focus appropriate focus on China as a problem and as a potential challenger to the United States is making Russia feel left behind. And to the extent the Biden administration can do anything about this, I think the early signals that they wanted to stabilize the Russian relationship so they could focus on China was probably injudicious signaling. But I mean that as a very mild form of criticism because they were appropriately projecting their priorities and a little bit of wishful thinking that the Russians would, you know, focus on not having as many COVID deaths as the United States, despite having half the population, the demographic collapse of the country, the economic collapse of the country, you know, doing things good for Russians. We probably should have known that that wasn't what Vladimir Putin would do. But still, it does seem to me, though, that the fundamental calculation that the Russians are making is that they can be spoilers about things we care enough, but that we don't care enough to go to war with Russia over. They're playing the threshold game extraordinarily adroitly, and they ratchet it up until we kick them back off the rung of the ladder they're on, as the United States did killing a whole bunch of Wagner mercenaries in Syria, and we have done one or two other times. The problem is that the Russians are accurately reading our risk tolerance, and they're making a lot of aggressive moves, bad for our interests, but short of where we're actually really willing to run risks. This is what Vladimir Putin has done brilliantly, and he's done it for three presidential administrations. He's playing the gap between what we're saying we're willing to do and what we're actually willing to do. Yeah. Well, so Constanza, that, you know, what Corey says is exactly right. Putin went into Georgia and uh, the Bush administration tried to come up with some suitable counter reaction to that, which included moving some missiles. Condi Rice went to Poland. Putin went into Crimea and uh, Donbass and 
there was a kind of a debate with, I'm going to make a little light of it, within the Obama administration about whether to send blankets or MREs. You know, we didn't do a, a whole heck of a lot in terms of that. Now you've got this very serious thing. We have the French president saying, you know, he will defend the territorial integrity of Ukraine, which, of course, immediately led some people to say, well, what about Crimea and Donbass? Are you going to defend that as well? Seems unlikely. Is this all some form of communication? And as Corey suggests, Putin acting out, or is this likely to get out of control? I would add that the sort of picture with Russia is colored a little bit by development, apparently, that we're just learning about today or just discussing today in which the Russians undertook an anti-satellite test, which uh, blew up one of their dead satellites and has the crew of the International Space Station sort of huddled in place for fear of space debris. What's the likelihood in your mind that this kind of strange communications dance turns into something more serious? I'm afraid I'm going to say it's kind of all of the above. In other words, I agree with Corey that there are a lot of domestic pressures and motivations on both Lukashenko and Putin for them to want to distract from, and a long-standing desire to establish themselves as figures, counterparts worthy of consideration to American presidents. And it seems to be particularly important to both of them to be slotted in at a level that is above all the European minions. That's something we're all familiar with. We also know that in you know, Putin's past territorial forays, he's usually ended up with, shall we say, less than optimal real estate in Eastern Europe that has brought him little to zero military advantage and really quite considerable, and I think to the Kremlin, surprising political costs. Essentially, I've been watching this very closely since the 2000s, and particularly since 2008. And I think that the Germans were actually not just moved to reconsider their position in 2014. They started doing so in 2008 when the Kremlin instigated, provoked Saakashvili into an overreaction and then tried to take Georgia away from him. I also remember vividly in 2014 listening to sort of bilateral German-Russian conversations between, you know, that included both policymakers and, and think tankers. The Germans were incandescent with anger. And the Russians were wearing a big sign on their forehead saying, we know you have to say this in public, let's go discuss at the bar later. And there was a fair amount of misreading of feelings in Berlin by the Kremlin and its, its associates. If we want to be fair here, I think it's worth noting that the, the, it's been the Germans who've held together the sanctions consensus against Russia over, since 2014 over real resistance from other Western European countries that wanted to break out, naming no names here. But that is true, and it's, and it's come at an actual cost to Germany, a financial cost. But that said, nobody also talks about a strategic relationship with Russia and Berlin anymore. That's done and over. It's just not there anymore. And I don't think that Putin expected that. As Corey said, he keeps exploiting windows of opportunity, pushing in, putting European leaders and German leaders at a real disadvantage because they themselves don't have the same kind of tools don't want to use the same kind of tools. And right now we, have, we are seeing divisions in Europe and in the alliance that the Russians, of course, are, as always, exploiting with exquisite ability. There are two risks here. 
One is of an accidental miscalculation that leads to violence on the, on the borders of Ukraine or in Belarus and beyond. And this is something that the Russians are courting when they send Russian bomber planes over Belarus and over the borders. Uh, it's something that they're obviously according with what's going on in Ukraine. So far, the Ukrainians themselves seem to have remained admirably level-headed. That's also not something that's always been the case in the past, but they seem to be well, well advised right now. And the other risk, it isn't that we don't have miscalculation, but that Russia ends up doing something that is deliberate, but miscalculated all the same. And that then forces the hand of the West, of NATO and the European Union and in the end, isolates Putin in a way that, that doesn't make him any less dangerous and leads to losses of lives and, and humanitarian disasters up and down uh, European eastern borders. Those two things are what I'm most concerned about. Having lived through the Balkans Wars um, and the following events, as a, first as a journalist, then as a think tanker, I'm having some bad flashback memories right now. I'm having a few flashbacks here myself, Evo. One of them is to a conversation that I was participating in during the uh, initial Russian foray into Crimea, in which the then Assistant Secretary for Europe, Toria Newland, was advocating a much tougher stance than the Obama administration ended up taking. She's now the Undersecretary of State for Political Affairs. Is there a chance that Putin? is making a miscalculation about the resolve or likelihood of action from the United States. Some people have interpreted this as saying, well, Biden doesn't want to get involved anywhere. He's getting, he got out of Afghanistan. Uh, you can test him. He's not going to do anything. Do you think this is a mistake Putin may be making? So, yeah, after two miscalculations that Constanza talked about, I'm much more worried about the second than the first. The, the miscalculation that Putin may misread Biden and the administration. And it's well to remember, it wasn't just Toria Newland who wanted to be tougher. It was also the then Deputy National Security Advisor, Anthony Blinken, and the then Vice President, Joe Biden, who wanted to be tougher. And I remember well that uh, in, in early 2015, when a group of us were pushing very hard for lethal assistance, including at the Munich Security Conference, in which Chancellor Merkel made an impassioned plea against the idea of arming those who were being uh, attacked, that in the administration, the only person who was against it was the president and the national security advisor to some extent, but the vice president was very much in favor of. It. So you would think, and, and everything that Biden has said and done prior to becoming president, including you know saying to Nora O'Donnell just before the election, uh, saying that the biggest threat we face is Russia, the biggest competitor is China, but the biggest threat is Russia that they are thinking about and preparing for some serious potential countermeasures. What I hope they're doing is that they're communicating them, that they are making very clear to the Russians that there are, I won't use the word red lines, but there are lines that shouldn't be crossed and that there are consequences when they are crossed. And those consequences are spelled out from lethal capabilities to intelligence sharing, to ISR, and a whole variety of other things that we could do very short of sending our own troops in. I don't think you find the president of the United States as saying that it's going to defend the territorial integrity of, uh, of Ukraine, but you have already seen the secretary of state saying this, that we 
fundamentally believe in the sovereignty, independence, and territorial, uh, territorial integrity of Ukraine. And I, and I would think that there is a not unreasonable chance that if Putin acts precipitously, he will find a United States much more willing to act than it was in 2014. At least that's my hope, given the people who are in this administration at that high level. That was their perspective in 2014. I would argue that it is even more important in 2021, particularly given the signal it sends to allies around the world who are worried about American staying power, particularly since it's not just Russia you're worried about as you were in 2014, but also China, that standing up for the fundamental principles that we believe in is is important. And one of those principles is a very simple one, the right to self-defense. Uh, and, and Ukraine surely has the right to defend itself. And we, as part of the international community, have a right to support Ukraine in that self-defense in whatever form that we judge to be correct. And my sense is the administration is willing to do that. And I very much hope that it is and that it is sending clear signals to the Russians that it will do so. And again, you don't send Bill Burns, your CIA director to Moscow, empty handed when it comes to those kinds of things. So my sense is that's probably what they happen. But Putin may not believe it, in which case actions will be forthcoming, which will then lead to consequences that have been been thought about. I would add to those of you who are listening to us, perhaps for the first time or who have not followed us closely or have not followed these matters closely. Evo was, of course, U.S. ambassador to NATO during this period. I'd also add that the current national security advisor had pretty strong views on this subject as well, Jake Sullivan. And so the constellation of people within this administration is significantly tougher on these issues than many people may be led to expect. Hello, Deep State Radio and Spy Talk listeners. I'm Jeff Stein. And I'm Jean Meserve. You may have noticed that Spy Talk has moved. You won't be able to find new episodes in the Deep State Radio feed anymore. Make sure you don't miss any new episodes. Just search for Spy Talk in your usual podcast app and subscribe. Or hit the link in the description of this week's episode. I want to make a ask a quick set of questions. I'll ask you one, Corey. And then I think what I'll do is I'll go back to Evo because you're going to depart. And then we'll pick up again uh, after the break with Constanza. But Corey, Constanza made mention of what's going on on the border of Belarus. Lukashenko has uh, sort of uh, orchestrated, it seems, a number of, quote, refugee threats to the border of Poland and that threaten a number of other countries. And it has been suggested by some of those governments now that perhaps this should trigger an Article 4 response under NATO. Many people are familiar with Article 5, which is uh, pertains to de- the defense. Article 4 is a step ahead of that and suggests that consultation is necessary among NATO members on this. How serious do you take what's going on there, Corey? Very seriously. I mean, the Belarusians, Lukashenko, I shouldn't, I should make a distinction between the people of Belarus who have been running great risks to make clear that the election was not fair and to make clear that they are captives in Lukashenko's state, not citizens in control of it. But Lukashenko is trying to turn migration into a weapon trying to say that Europeans and people who share Europe's universal values should keep their mouths shut about his illegitimacy 
Otherwise, he's going to become a funnel for migrants from Afghanistan, the Middle East, and other tragically war-torn places. Turkey tried this trick to great effect earlier on in the Syrian civil war, and Lukashenko saw how advantageous it was. And so it's part of this whole threshold warfare that the West's adversaries are trying to force us into positions where we either look like hypocrites or fail to uphold our values or an action is outrageous, but shy of what we either have an effective response for or are willing to run the risks of conflict in order to counter. So yeah, this is terrible. It's disgraceful. And it's putting the lives of people who are trying to emigrate safely and legally into great peril because now they're trapped in the no man's land, in particular between Poland and Belarus. And it's just like the way that Bashar al-Assad in Syria and the Taliban in Afghanistan are saying, you're not going to let our population starve, are you? So taking no responsibility for governance, but putting problems of their own creation onto Western shoulders. So we only have a minute or two, Evo. I did want to get your take on this. Belarus is sort of the last satellite of the Soviet empire. Lukashenko is unlikely to have done any of this without talking to Putin about it. How worrisome do you find it? So I find it worrisome, but I also uh, am for all the reasons that, that Corey laid out, and particularly this idea of using human beings as weapons almost of warfare and this new form of, of hybrid warfare is absolutely uh, outrageous. At the same time, I, I think the response that we have seen so far, particularly in the European Union, which has effectively shut down all flights to Minsk and to Belarus, which People in, in uh, as we were uh, hearing and, and reading about in a variety of places in Iraq and other places where you're getting free visas and, and easy access to a package where you fly in, you get a visa, you fly in, they keep you overnight and they bus you out to, to the border, that that is now coming to an end, that effective sanctions or uh, threat of sanctions and diplomacy by the European Union has shut down these flights to Minsk. So the immediate problem is now the people who are there as opposed to the next flow that it may be coming in. And here, I think there's, there's sort of two, two measures that, we, uh, that, that would be useful. I do think that Poland and Latvia and Lithuania are well justified to invoke uh, Article 4 consultations at NATO. I'm actually surprised they haven't done it previously. This is clearly a threat to the political independence, sovereignty, and territorial integrity of these countries. And, and having consultations with NATO on this would, would have been very good. It might have been able to bolster some of the military and other presence that, uh, uh, that could be deployed to those parts of the, of the area. And secondly, I think you now need a solution for these people. And, and since we're talking about a few thousand people, it should not be beyond the capacity of the European Union to absorb them uh, in, in, an, in an equitable fashion, not just saying to the Poles, you keep them, but basically doing this as, a, as an integrated EU response. And my sense is that's probably going to happen over the next couple of days because no one wants uh, people uh, sitting in this area starving both from hunger and, and, and exposure to, uh, to what is already uh, the depth of winter uh, in, this, in this part of the world. 
But it does raise this larger question about what is your counter strategy to Lukashenko? What is your strategy towards Putin? How do you weaken their capacity for mischief? And one way to do it is to have a more coherent, more united, stronger uh, set of policies that make uh, uh, them pay for when they're engaged in this kind of mischief. Policies going after their money, going after their sources of capital, using the techniques that we have in an asymmetric way that we wouldn't be talking about. But there's a lot of things we could do to increase the cost to Lukashenko and particularly to Putin of this misbehavior. And my sense is we we just haven't been willing to do that. And, And the time may come to really look at Putin as the strategic adversary that he is. He's not a nice guy. There's nothing we can do with him. He has no, his interests are not our interests. Yes, we can have arms control negotiations, which I think is fine uh, and I support, but it, the, the fundamentals is we need to be much clearer about where we stand vis-a-vis Russia than I think we've, we have been for, uh, as Corey said, this is the fourth administration, uh, actually fifth administration that Putin is dealing with, and the fourth who's trying to figure out what the policy is. Well, the policy is clear. The guy's not pursuing in policies that are in our interest, and we, t- we should oppose it. And with that, unfortunately, I got to run. Thank you, Ivo. You're exactly right. It's very important, as you know, in this podcast, when Corey says somebody is exactly right, it's the highest confirmation. Um, I, 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 I agree. Thanks for joining us, Ivo. Perhaps you'll join us again in the future sometime. For the rest of you, this is the point of the podcast where we take a very, very brief break. And we'll be back in a moment or two and continue this discussion with Corey and Constanza. For now, thanks to Ivo. And, uh, We'll see you all on the other side of the break.